Welcome to RGM. Are you in a band? Come and join us. Simply click on the RGM submission page, submit your music, and we'll sort the rest. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a taste of uh, booze. I'm just having a little pint before I go out today, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I'm off to see the boys, the Coffersets, in Manchester at Academy 2. Uh, so I'm right looking forward to that. I'm going to do some of that 360 filming uh, that I do at gigs and that, you know. Um, hello. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the RGM, RGM Experience Podcast with me, Carl Maloney. How are you doing, you right? Yeah, I'm quite excited about tonight. We always talk about the path and the journey of a band. And where, I think it was nearly, it must have been nearly eight or nine years ago, we had the cover sets on at the Frog and Parrot. We had the cover sets on at RGM Live down at the Mulberry Tavern in Sheffield many many years ago and these guys at, at that time they were they were just like you know when you see a band and you, they just want it and these guys are going to get it because tonight ladies and gentlemen they're playing the biggest ever gig yet the biggest crowd at Manchester Academy 2 tonight so I'm really excited just to just to be there and just you know knowing the hard work that those lads are putting into being in a band and making it and selling tickets all over the country now, it just makes me proud. So I, I just, you know, the journey of a band, every story is different, everybody's got a story to tell. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what this podcast's all about. So welcome to a new week with me, Carl Maloney. How you doing? You're on eight. I've said that twice now, I think it's because I've had a glass of beer. Uh, but today, ladies and gentlemen, oh, I, I, need, to, I need to let you know, I'll... And I'm not going to keep banging on about this because I've mentioned it. I've, I've built it up too much. I went to the horses in Doncaster. It were all right. It were all right. Good fun day. Started drinking really early. Felt horrendous the next day. I saw the king. Yeah, in real life, it's funny when you see like it. Just it, 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 we were just having a beer around the around the back bit of the. Uh, horses <laughs> i don't know the fucking paddock or whatever it's called and uh, they all started getting all like m- moving stuff about all these security people and like, what's going on here and one security bloke said uh, well the king's coming i'm like all right mate whatever and then i got quite excited about the idea of seeing the king it's not very often you see the king is it of the king of england um so i i, I just hovered around a little bit looking about Am I going to see the king? Am I going to see the king? I'm going to see the king. I got quite excited about it. Um, and then I, I saw this other security lady. I said, oh, is, is the king coming? She said, nope, the king's not coming. So I thought, I don't know what to fucking believe here. What's going on here? Next minute, these big flashing cars come in. I thought, it's going to be the king. It's going to be the king. Next minute, king comes out, drives past, waving to us all and that. Not the best story in the world. But why did that woman have to lie to me, though? Like, she was being all, like, CID and that. 
she were wearing like the horse racing like attire, so she must have worked for the horse racing people and just helping them out, helping the security people out. But I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm still maybe overthinking it. But why did she lie? Why would you lie? Anyway, I had a great time in Doncaster. It was fantastic. I lost my glasses. Can't remember getting home. One of them. Um, but yeah. <laughs> You've enjoyed that little uh, thing. I, I saw the king. I'm going to move on, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, today, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a brand new episode with Chris Bridget, ladies and gentlemen. Now, if you're not aware of Chris, who Chris is, uh, been in many bands over the years in Dub Sex, Rude Club, Cold Water Swimmers, loads more as well. And now he's doing the solo stuff. So he's been around a bit, you know, he's played supporting the Stone Roses and that kind of stuff. Big massive gigs, and he's been around the music industry and the grassroots music industry more, more recently as well. So, uh, loads of story to tell, loads of stories to share with you, those podcast listeners. Hey, up! So, I'm off out to the cover sets tonight. I hope whatever you're doing this week, you're enjoying a lovely week of music. Uh, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> I'm all out of puff. Uh, right, ladies and gentlemen, I've got, I've got all excited. I, I saw the king. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier. Uh, right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to uh, pass you on to and introduce you to a storyteller. Uh, somebody who's been around the industry for years. There's plenty to learn. There's many a stories to tell. Wait for the tomato soup story. It involves John Squire. Coming up. Ladies and gentlemen, let's tell some stories and have a laugh. It's Chris, Chris Bridget. Take it away, mate. Hey, how are you doing, Carl? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. It's, it's warm, isn't it? We, we're in the depths Very of this warm, fucking heat wave thing. Oh, what's it like? I know, I'm still, I'm just stretching myself really? a little bit. It's a nice Sunday, we're just having a nice little chat. Yeah, but I've, I've realised, I've seen you around, since I come to Manchester, and I've seen your name all over the place, and I've had the pleasure to see you out and about at gigs and that kind of stuff as well. Um, but yeah. I've not had the pleasure of having a good sit-down chat and proper get to know you a little bit, mate. So, so that, right. that's well, let's what, cut that right today. Should we sort that now, eh? Yeah, we should do that right away, <laughs> shouldn't we? Brilliant, brilliant. So, <laughs> in, introduce, so, so the people that aren't aware of who you are, mate, and what you do, just tell us a little bit about yourself to start off. Yeah, um, I'm Chris Bridget. I'm an artist. I use the medium of songwriting, guitar playing, singing, mm. um, to express my art. Yeah. Um, I've spent most of my life um, obsessed with um, bands and music, um i started playing music uh at the end of the 80s in a band called dub sex i was the guitarist in that band um spent the 90s um putting together a band called rude club um we signed major publishing and recording deals and kind of did all right went through the major label machine um i stopped playing music for a while um came back about 10 years ago um, started a band called the G.O.D. Uh, with a guy called Cy Walsencroft. Then the last five years, I've had a band called Cold Water Swimmers. We released an album called Holiday at the Secret Lake in 2021. And earlier this year, I decided that I'd taken that band as far as I could. And it was time to uh, 
to do the songs I'd been writing solo. Mm. So that's like a brief 30 seconds rundown. Of, of how uh, many years? Gosh, um, <laughs> I've been making music for two decades now wow. with 15, de- 15 years off in the middle. Wow. I stopped playing in sort of 1999 and didn't pick up a guitar for, what, 14 years? Yeah. I just stopped overnight after a band called Rue Club. Um, as I say, we've been, um, we've been signed after six, six shows, Rude Club. We're one of those hype yeah. bands that we hear so much about now. Industry plants, we probably would have been called back in the days. <laughs> uh, we got signed fairly quickly. Um, we went through the mill, got dropped by our major record label, and I had enough. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was 30, 31 then. And uh, I walked away from music as a player. I... Yeah, got involved in managing bands, um, running a small label, releasing music. So I went over to the other side briefly before I started playing again. Oh, and that was 10 years ago. Side. Oh, well, we're, we're, we're going to have loads of stories today then, aren't we? That's a nice little Absolutely introduction loads. to get through. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. So let's rewind before music then. So talk me through what little Chris were up to. Uh, what was the landscape like as a kid for you before you, you, you went into the, the industry and started to get into music and stuff? What was the landscape around? Yeah, like yeah. I uh, I was, uh, obviously you can tell by my accent, I was originally from the northeast. Mm. As a young lad, I, I grew up uh, in a place called South Shields, mm. um, lived in Scotland for a while um, and, and did all the usual kid stuff, you know, got into music probably when, when I was about 12, 13 years old. Mm. Um discovering my dad's Bob Dylan and listening to the Beatles and yeah. getting into the Stones. And when I was 12, 13, it was, um, that was like 79. Yeah. And it was the rise of um, the mod revival and two-tone. So I was very much into that sort of stuff. And then uh, I'm a bit older in my teen, teenage years. I got very much into sort of post-punk scene and got my first guitar. I didn't get my first guitar until quite late. I was 15 yeah. before I started playing. Mm. Um, and um, started my first band when I was 16. I was a band in Gator called The Reptiles. We had a, a little record out on Volume Records, which was a hell of a buzz when you were 16, yeah. 17. Um, we, um, yeah, and then I came to Manchester well, as a student. Before music, though, like, what was the landscape around you like? What do you know? What, how did you grow? Up, how did you grow up through school and that kind of stuff? What, what kind of made you as a person before you, you started with music, though? Just, just before we get to that bit. Gosh, I really don't know, Carl. I've forgotten most of it, to be honest, you know. <laughs> I really have. Going back um, that far, I suppose, as as a, um, a child, to be to be quite honest, um, always a bit of a loner, yeah. um, but always was um, um, popular enough to have one or two friends. Yeah. Um, I always enjoyed, um, you know, always enjoyed music, enjoyed school. Yeah, there's nothing really... Did, unusual did, about the only reason why i asked that question and i do ask it yeah. a lot, is because uh musicians and artist types they seem to have not sometimes not fitted in at school and find it quite difficult and i was just wondering if that was similar for you or was it a different story for you well when i lived in scotland i suppose as an english um boy in scotland i suffered mm. bullying uh, but i'm not mm. going on about that it's just something yeah. that you know i went through and then i mean i always only had one or two friends but you know i was mm. always popular enough i've always uh yeah. um you know that that wasn't an issue i mean as t- to be perfectly honest when i was 
14 and 15 and first wanted a guitar was because I realised that if you played some guitar and you sang some songs, you'd get more girls, you know? Ah. That was the, um, the, the the honesty of it. I saw the film uh, Hard Day's Night by the Beatles where they all live in those terrace houses joined together. Yeah. And that was before I understood what the concept of a, um, a band really was. Yeah. And I just thought, wow. That's what I want. I want to walk into I have like four terraces that are all joined together and all my mates are on the other side in one big house and we get to just play guitars and run around and get chased by screaming girls. To me, that was like as good as it gets, you know? So, yeah, yeah. that's not much of an answer. I know, Carl, but... No, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm I never want to like pry into anywhere where people don't want to talk about it. It's just, I, I just see, I, when I do, I do a lot of these interviews and when I do these interviews, I, I see, yeah. I'll see little trends and sometimes it, it reflects with new guests that I speak to. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, it's just, you know, just delving into yeah, you yeah. and your history yeah. before we get into the music because we've got loads of time for well, that. Well, I've grown well. up into a very complicated, dark character, if that helps, Carl. Yes, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, um, don't worry, there's plenty of darkness and twists <laughs> and turns in my story, you know. Yeah, well... It's all there. Well, it, you know, it's it, it, the history of people in the music industry, there's a, there's a lot of people out there that are really struggling mentally and that kind of stuff, and, and the, whole in, the whole industry... Um, it can feel like it's on a knife edge at some point. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I'm yeah. looking into it through a certain, like through a through a lens that's not really there, or I'm exaggerating. I don't really know. Uh, I, I just, yeah. I just worry about it sometimes. That's all. And people within the industry. That's all. I think I've got quite a unique perspective. I've mm. made music uh, as a young man in the end of the eighties and the mid nineties. I've also made music over the last 10 years yeah. in a completely different era with social media and a whole different range of different pressures. Mm. Um, so I've got quite a unique perspective and I've made music at the grassroots at all of those levels. So I, I know what pressures um, are there for musicians. I mean, when I made music in the mid nineties, uh, it was a, a golden era for opportunities and deals. You know, uh, young musicians who were of any talent or had the right connections could sign deals that were worth signing. Mm. You know, where you'd you know you'd get 150 grand, 200 grand advance. Mm. They didn't take a slice of merchandise, or they didn't demand some money from gigs. Um, you could actually support yourself for a little while whilst you um, tried to get that traction and foothold and get people to listen to you. Um, but also in the end of the 80s, I made music where no band in the alternative scene expected to sign a major record deal. I think um, the likes of what happened in sort of 92 post-Manchester, just before Britpop, changed that as record companies started to sign bands from the grassroots. But in the 80s, um, if you're lucky enough to put an independent release out, yeah. um, you know, that was fantastic. These days, it's easy to record and it's easy to get something out and it's easy to distribute because you can do it all yourself. But then you've got another one billion people releasing a song on the yeah. same day yeah. using all of that technology. So in some respects, it's easier to do everything you need to do in your art, record it, um, release it, publicize it, mm. get pressed. It's it's easier to do all of those things, but it's harder to be heard. 
because there's so much noise and this, the levels of concentration are so few and there's so many alternative things to do. Uh, gaming and, and, and what have you. Uh, there's so many other things you can do online. So it's harder now is what I'm saying. And whenever you commit yourself to something artistic and you put your life and your soul into it and it doesn't get listened to or you feel that it isn't being received in a way that you would like or expect, mm. it's very difficult for your mental health. Mm. So people who suffer that, it's not unusual and it's perfectly acceptable yeah. to feel that way because it's it would be a surprise if you didn't feel that way. Mm. But as a, a musician and an artist, you've got to go through a process that's ever-changing. You have to understand that once you produce some music and put it out to the best of your ability, at that point there, it has nothing to do with you now, mm. whether people listen or they don't, whether they like it or they don't. It's not your issue anymore. And I think as you get older, as I am now, obviously, and have lived quite a bit of life, you learn these things, and that's quite a valuable lesson. Mm. Oh, well said. Well said, mate. Nice one. And did, did what was the creative control like when you when you had record deals in the past and historically compared to... Because obviously you've got full creative control these days. Everybody else, because they're, they're doing it themselves yeah. and they make their own calls on it. How did it compare? How did those things compare then and now? Yeah, I think the artist I've always been is I've always had complete con creative control. Yeah, okay. As, as, as soon as somebody starts to tell me what to do, I, I start to shut down yeah. because this is not what I make music for. Yeah. You know, I don't make music to tell me I should sound a little bit more like X band because they're doing really well right now. Or I should sing like such and such because that's doing really well right now. Or I should start to go on TikTok and do daily reels because that's what's making people successful. It's fortunate for me that I don't, think about those things. Yeah. You know, I don't consider those things. I make art and that's writing songs and writing words and playing guitar. And I do that to the best of my ability with what I've got at the time, yeah. you know, um, it's not easy to, to always have that approach, especially when you're younger, mm. when ambition clouds your mind and you're constantly looking at other people as a comparison and uh, it's it's tough, mm. but uh, yeah, another rambling sort of reply to you, Carl. No, it, it, it's not. I get it. I'm, you know, I, nobody's got the answers to these type of things. We, we just, we just, we. I think just having discussions about it and just being honest helps yeah. as much as somebody having an answer for things sometimes. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Cool. <laughs> well, we're, we're living in this big city, Manchester now, mate. I got dragged. Are you living in Manchester now, or I, over in Sheffield? No, I'm from Sheffield, but I live in Manchester. So, oh, I, I didn't so, know. so, so we got dragged over here, just in Denton, just down the road from you, pal. Not too far away. All right. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, what what brought you to Manchester then? Well, I studied architecture. Right. I was going to be an architect, um, and I dropped out after a couple of years because I joined a band called Dub Sex. And it was like, do you want to go yeah. on tour in this sort of rock band who are on the rise, yeah. go on telly and do all that sort of <laughs> stuff? Or do you want to go and do your year in an architect's office? <laughs> so <laughs> I decided yeah. that um, I wanted to play music and, 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 and do that. Um, and um, 
you know, that set the, the you know the path for the next sort of three decades. Well, we, we, well it was architecture, yeah. You mentioned the, the first, but just getting onto the music then a little bit. So the the first band you were you sixteen, they said, and you got a, a record release. Yeah, when you were younger than yeah, yeah. Let, it, was, uh, it was when I was sixteen. Start in, in, in Gateshead, it was yeah, yeah. It was it was a band called the Reptiles, nice, which I joined uh, as a guitarist. I think the only. Um, let me join because it wasn't because I played it because I had a really nice guitar mm. I bought like a, a nice uh, Fender Telecaster um, with the money I earned working in a garage <laughs> part time yeah. so I think they just liked me guitar nice. but <laughs> it was great you know I was only 16 we did things like did uh, minors benefits gigs oh. because the minors strike was on how ancient does that make me sound mm. but 16 um, year old playing punk songs to Minus, who obviously hated you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, tried to raise some money for them. So yeah. it goes way back to to that point, really. And what kind? And of, that was when I was living in Gateshead. And what? And what? What kind of music was that then? What? What was around you at the We're time? A punk what, band. Just We're your a punk, punk band. Right, okay. Yeah, just 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 a punk band, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's that's what we were, but we were quite political. We had this organisation mm. called the Gateshead Music Collective, where we all banded together mm. and. Um, um, got onto the council for re- rehearsal spaces and managed to get an old disused, disused police station yeah. um, as a rehearsal room. Mm. And uh, so we were really um, a cooperative and quite um, keen on, on making things happen. We were quite radical. Mm. It was quite a radical scene. There was a lot of crass anarchist punks. Um, there was a lot of traditional punks. There was a lot of... Um, um, pious punks. Okay. Um, so it was. It was. Uh, it it, it was a, a good solid scene. What's a pious punk? What's a pious? Punk? A pious punk is a term I've just sort of made up. Okay. Right. But it's the ones who. Oh, you can't do that because it's, oh. it's not punk. Oh. oh, you can't do that because it's selling out. Right. Oh no, you can't do that because it's not real. Okay. Right. You know <laughs> those oh. sorts of musicians. You get them now, still, yeah, Carl. Yeah, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. oh no, you can't do that. No, no. Yeah. You, you, you get it on both sides. You get guitarists who sneer at you if you use distortion on your guitar. <laughs> well, you used to get that. You know, at one point in 1987 in the Hacienda, you get people who look down on you if you took drugs. Oh. A year later, <laughs> yeah, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> everybody took drugs. Yeah. So you always get these pious people in the scene who think they know better than you and have written down a rule book of what you should and shouldn't do. Yeah. But kids, that rule book doesn't exist. Yeah, so how did that band come to its natural end then? Me, I, I can't remember. I left probably. Oh, That's okay. my standard yeah. MO. <laughs> <laughs> I usually leave because I've had enough or I disband yeah. it all okay. and uh, move on to something fresh. Yeah. Okay. Always moving forward. So, so yeah. So, so okay. And so after that band, then talk us through what happened next and which, where, where, where did you go from there? Um, well, when I came to Manchester, I moved into mm. a place called Hume, mm. which at the time, was notorious as this concrete jungle and no-go area. I found it wonderful. It was a big playground full of loads of creative people where we lived for free. You know, some kids at college are going to hate me for this, but the first two years when I was at Polytechnic, I didn't pay any rent. I didn't pay any electricity, didn't pay any gas. It was one big adventure, and Hume was like that. And it gave a lot of people the freedom and the space 
and often the solitude needed to be creative in a way that doesn't exist these days. Mm. If you want to be creative these days and you want to have that space and that freedom, you, you can't do what, do what we did, which was live in squats, not pay anything for our upkeep and live off benefits <laughs> and what other scams we could do. Now, a lot of people would frown at that, but a few of the people who lived like that in my age group are now upstanding members of society who've mm. created wonderful things. I could point a few people out who are really cool writers who lived like that. Mm. You know, TV personalities and faces who lived in that community and um, grew out of that sort of freedom of expression and that space to, to create. That doesn't exist any anymore. I, f- I feel I've gone on another tangent. No, no, I, I was just going to know you, you arrived in Hume. Uh, in Hume. Uh, you had this. You had yeah. So, so anyway, yeah. Get us back on the story because I'll just keep going off on tangents. No, it's cool. You know, it's cool. But- are, are you comfortable mentioning anybody's name out of that from that environment? Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's I mean, there's people. Say, for example, somebody that that, that everybody would know. I mean, uh, Dave Haslam. Hmm. He was in Charles Barry Crescent. Um, so, and everybody in in our community knows him as a yeah. as a writer. Uh, and as a DJ and as a creative, mm. um, and he certainly lived that that lifestyle. Um, but I suppose after after Hume, um, uh, or after initially came to Hume, that's when I joined Dub Sex, yeah. and that was a pure accident. Yeah. You know, um, Mark Hoyle moved into the flat next door to me. <laughs> he said, Do you want to come and audition for my band? And I'd seen them the year before play at the PSV club, which was the original factory mm. sort of hangout in Hume and uh, I thought they were brilliant yeah. absolutely fantastic band and then six months later I was, I was being asked if I wanted to play guitar on them wow. and uh, um, you know I got that gig and then straight away we were on TV you know the other side of midnight you've probably seen the clips of the roses and the Mondays on that legendary show hosted by Tony Wilson um, and we were on that um, this was sort of 88 and mm. uh, those bands Mondays Roses, dub sex, in spirals, were all about the same sort of level. We were all doing the same sort of gigs. But come 89, after the Mondays had released um, Bummed and Wrote for Luck especially, you know, the remix, um, Oakenfold remix of Wrote for Love, everything changed. You know, the world went day glow and everyone, not everyone was on LSD and ecstasy, but obviously that was the portrayal and the way the culture was going. And our band, Dub Sex, wasn't like that. We were very post-punk, uh, charcoal grey in, in, in a lot of respects, rather than yeah. um, than um, technical or, or psych- psychedelic. Um, so I think the timing was wrong for that band, although we were brilliant. Mm. We were a great band. Mark Coyle's voice is still one of the best voices ever to come out of Manchester. One day people will realise that, I'm sure, and um, understand that he is one of the the best. Um, What was the the day like coming up to filming uh, on telly with Tony Wilson? Just talk us through, like, behind the scenes of that. 
because people are aware of Tony Wilson. They're aware of yeah, the impact yeah. he had on Manchester music in, in in those days. What was what was what was it all like? Just paint a picture of what a typical yeah, day in yeah. the studio was well, like. Well, as a band, we we rocked up at the old Granada Studios on Key mm. Street, which is yeah. now the the factory complex. Mm. The first thing I remember was um, was a, a you know a fantastic Francis Bacon triptych in the hallway when you walked into this mm. brutalist um, reception area. So I was straight away impressed because me, you know, I was looking at the, the space and mm. and this fantastic piece of art, which was there. It was a Francis Bacon there, mm. triptych, and I was just knocked out. And then I was taken up to, to get my makeup done by this woman who was, um, who was a, a terrible flirt, Oh. But I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. And she was putting on my makeup and she was teasing me about how much makeup um, I needed to wear. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And then we walked out, actually. And um, it was in one of those all-white rooms. So you can't really see the corners. And I was expecting to meet Tony Wilson, but he wasn't there. It was all obviously re- you know recorded and yeah. stuff. And then we did our performance, played it live. And, uh, and it was good fun. And we played well. And then a few weeks later, we all stayed up on a Sunday night, yeah. you know, 12.30, um, Sunday, Monday morning, mm. um, other side of midnight when it was on, to watch ourselves on the telly for the first time. Nice. And it was fantastic because, I mean, these days it would be all over Twitter, all over yeah. Facebook. You'd be sharing reels and TikToks. But obviously then it was, it was you'd get a phone call, mm. I've just seen you on the telly, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, which... Um, it was a buzz, you know, I was only yeah. 21 yeah. and it was great to join my first band and and um, do great shows and be on the telly and mm-hmm. release great records, records that people still talk about now, which yeah. is, which is great. Did, did you ever meet Tony Wilson? Yeah, loads of times. Yeah. Um, after that, um, my best friend, a guy called uh, Gary McCausland, just happened to get a job at Factory Records mm-hmm. and he was production, um, production manager there so i met tony for the first time at palatine road before they moved into the new buildings on charles street and the first time i met him he it would it would have been 89 before the roses got as big as the mondays the mondays got big first and um i walked into the office and he knew i was in dub sex and he showed me the that week's nme front cover and he said what do you think of this and it was the Roses cover where they're all covered in paint. Oh, you know, legendary yeah, yeah. cover. Um, but I've forgotten the photographer. I don't know who it is. I can't I don't know, mate. That legendary cover where they're all um, covered in paint. And I remember looking at it. And it was the first time I'd seen the Roses sort of presented in this sort of psychedelic sort of way, which I'd, I'd more associated with the, the Mondays. The Roses were more jingle jangle indie pop than going all psychedelic in Hacienda because you'd never see them in the – the Hacienda. You'd see Manny in the Hacienda, but you wouldn't see the other one. Oh, and you'd see Rennie sometimes. But um, And he asked me what I thought of this cover, and I thought, oh, and I said, they're just trying to take off the Mondays, Tony, because of the psychedelic thing. So that was the first time I met him. And then I met him loads of times. Um, just before he signed Northside, um, I went up with Gary and um, Tony to watch them rehearse in, in Collierhurst Drive, drove up in Tony's Jag and um, went to see Northside. And at the end of the, the the rehearsal, he said, well, what do you think? And I said, yeah, they're great. I'd sign them if I were you. 
Um, I'm not saying it was me who got them stained, like, but mm. don't let um, the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <Fair enough>. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I met Tony loads of times afterwards, um, as I did most of the factory, the lot, because I was a kid on the scene. I was in there most days from probably 1989 through to when it closed, 92. Because there, there, there is like a, a an aura around that guy, particularly here in Manchester. Could you could you could you tell there was something special about him when you yeah in real life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, thinking back, you know, he was only fifty seven when he died. And when he was doing these great things, he was well younger than than I was now. But um, there's a there's a belief in 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 some people in Manchester that you you kind of don't get from people elsewhere. Mm. Or I've not experienced in it the same way, the same self-belief and bloody-mindedness yeah. and confidence, I suppose. You know, I joke about what do they put in the water in Manchester that makes its people so cocky and self-assured and, and confident. Um, but Tony was, uh, as I remember him, was, um, was like was like that and probably a little bit in awe of them. I was a little bit in awe of all of them. You know, I was only a young kid, 21, 22, um, when I first sort of got to know these people. But um, there were legends in my eyes. Yeah. When I first started um, playing with Dub Sex and um, I discovered that the guy who was producing our records was a guy called Chris Nagel who'd engineered the Joy Division albums. Oh. It was like, fucking hell, whoa, ace. I'm one step closer <laughs> to people who've touched great greatness, you know? So um, I suppose Tony was one of those characters, one step closer to people who've created greatness yeah no, I, I love those love those stories from back in the day because uh, as, as a kid from sheffield looking over to what manchester were producing it was just manchester were just like we need to get we need to we need to get over there at some point and just have a bit of that <laughs> it, it was, yeah it was a magic moment wasn't it it definitely was i think i was just lucky that i i sort of landed up well not lucky it was just the way i was i was yeah. a musician i hung around where i did met the people that I did. Um, so it's not really luck, it's just situation, isn't it? Yeah. So how did how did, Dup, uh, how did the journey with Dupsex come to an end? Um, I just was more interested in raving and getting off my face and all that sort of stuff. And um, I thought I'd taken the band, <clears throat> or what I could do in the band as, as far as I'd like. And it was time for me to start doing something that was mine. Remember, I'd been invited into that band. The creative force behind it was Mark Hoyle, although I, you know, gave riffs and tunes and contributed to the music. I always had to be the guiding creative force yeah. in, in what I do, because otherwise it's there's, there's no value in it to me. So I walked away, but then two weeks later, Nathan McGough, who managed the Mondays, asked me if I wanted to go and work with them. So I worked with the Mondays for three months as soon as I, um, left up sex and I was in the office working with him, putting together the Manchester tour, you know, the rave on yeah. tour end of 89, just as they got big and exploded. I was, um, I helped put that tour together, um, what, with what, uh, Nathan McGough, the manager. What, just in like a office environment type thing, was it? And yeah, yeah, yeah. But I saved their asses a couple of times. There was <laughs> one on. time, um, um, <laughs> they, uh, they hadn't paid the tour bus. And it was a company called Stardes from over in Sheffield. Okay. Um, people in the music industry from way back will remember this name, Stardes. And I got a call on the Friday night um, 
as everyone was left the office and gone to dry bar from Stardes. And they said, listen, we're going to pull our driver off the van and the, the truck tomorrow unless we get paid. We're owed five grand. So I'm sat there going, shit, uh, no one's here. Uh, they're going to pull the two out tomorrow. So I um, remember phoning that and then phoning the people from the from factory. And then they arranged for me to pick up some cash from dry bar, the five grand in cash from the safe. And they asked me to drive over to Sheffield and drop the cash off on the Saturday morning um, to the Stardes office yeah. to, um, to make sure that the tour didn't get pulled and the drivers uh, of the bus and the, the truck um, didn't get taken off the jobs. So uh, that's uh, one moment when I, I saved the Happy Mondays fucking rave on to her from falling into disarray. But these people don't know this. They they mm. wouldn't be able to talk about that anecdote. To them, it was all went swimmingly well. Yeah, okay. And, <laughs> and, and, and did you say you've helped them another time? You, is there another time? You might as well tell uh, all the stories Well, possible. that's as far as I'm prepared to say. Oh, okay. Well, you, you can tell me over a pint the next one then, mate. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you a few stories <laughs> over a pint, though. <laughs> So, so back in the work, you know, you know, uh, almost like uh, you well, definitely back in the office, um, and then it, it sounds it sounds to me like that you're, you're that kind of person that's looking for your next project. Yeah, so, always, always, always. Well, so, so talking through that called, bit. Yeah, me and a guy called Ben. Um, we put a band together um, after Dubsex. So it was the next band yeah. that we did. It was a band called Hyperdelic, and this was sort of nineteen ninety. And we had this idea where we'd use drum beats, samples, my guitar, vocals, and create some sort of sort of techno indie freaking crossover thing. Um, we um, we did about one gig, recorded three songs, and then managed to sign a, a publishing deal with Warner Chapel for £50,000. <laughs> Those were the days when labels were coming up. Um, and signing anybody with a Casio SK-1 sampler, yeah. well, not quite like that, but y- you know what I mean. So um, that was a band called Hyperdelic. We were quite good, mm-hmm. and some of the tunes that we eventually did were quite classy. I found an old tape not so long ago, and it was like, bloody hell, that's actually quite good. Um, but that all fell apart in uh, two years later with, uh, with too many drugs, uh, too many wrong decisions, and uh, not enough discipline. So, how's it work? So, mechanically? Uh, you know, back then, you know, getting that uh, money in advance and 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 finishing the band and moving on. How did that? How does that logistically like sit with the record? What, do they get the money back? Well, no. How, what happens? It just <laughs> no. disappears, and, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, that's it. I mean, there's no. I mean, the I don't sorry for them these people make billions off the backs of artists um i mean that's their gamble isn't it and that's what Mm. they say and that justifies their horrible royalty rates you know because Mm. of the the gamble they have to take you know they have to take Mm. you know i mean in that era i i always joke about that you could tell which manchester band had just signed a record deal by walking into dry and seeing who had a new 500 pound jacket on <laughs> or a secondhand BMW parked up outside dry. Oh shit. They've just signed a record deal. Oh, it was such and such last week. You know, oh, did you not know they've signed a record deal? Have you not seen his new jacket? It was all that, you know? So it wasn't unusual. They were falling over yeah. themselves to sign anything. So it was, yeah. it was quite fortunate. It's great oh. time to be alive. No, I, I can imagine it's, 
it, it, it's really not nostalgic for me just to just to listen to these stories about how it was and how, how uh, and uh, you know just people being real about what it was like in them days it's just it's, it's a pleasure for me to listen to it you know I, I, I'm enjoying yeah, it smashing I can go on all day I won't like but as I say <laughs> when we have a pint yeah, we'll great. get a bit more colourful go on then and uh, so yeah so what, what happened next after that what, what year was that then uh, that was um, Hyperdelic finished in yeah. 1992 okay is this the when you were coming uh, towards, towards the end of putting the guitar down yeah. for a little bit then about this time no 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 I, I, I was still yeah. doing that I mean I'd um, by then I'd I'd, um, I'd um, managed to get myself a pretty nasty sort of drug habit mm. um, and that stayed with me for quite a few years by, uh, but, I, but I, I managed it and um, I was functioning mm. to a degree but um those years were kind of the start of that um, sort of sad period. Yeah. Um, but I started to put again a band together with my then girlfriend, a band called Rude Club, who were obviously female fronted, really solid rock band. And we were amazing. Mm. And we, we did our first gig in sort of January, 1996. Within three, four gigs, we had four major label deals on the table wanting to sign us by the July that year we'd signed a major deal with a um through epic records a, a company called uh, sacred one of these uh, indie fronted major labels and um you know we got 100 grand put into our mm. bank account one July morning and it was a, a way again you know buying new guitars and and uh, what have you. I mean, that didn't last very long. It lasted for two years as well. So <laughs> similar it, sort of story. Can you see a pattern developing? Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, Is there a, do, do you feel that this pattern of behaviour has done you well through the years? I don't know if it's easy to say well. Um, <laughs> there's plenty um, destructive behaviour associated with it all, mm. which probably hasn't done as, as well. No. But... Would I be here now with the same creative output I've got now ready to go? Would I be telling these stories? Yeah. It's really difficult to say whether things are good or bad yeah. because in every bad situation, something good usually grows out of it. Mm. So yeah. I'm not saying addiction and bad behaviour and behaviour out of character is, is, is necessarily a good or a bad thing. It is what it is. Mm. And... Um, your character grows because of it. Oh, well said, mate. That's a healthy way of looking at it. You know, not everything's bad, not everything's good. And the journey's different. Well, it's for how you well. badge it, isn't it? Yeah. It, it? It is how you um, frame these things yeah. um, in your thoughts. You know, there's some things that will absolutely devastate you and will devastate you for years, if not the whole of your life. And those things you could probably say weren't good things mm. and bad things. But even in those moments, if something incredible grows out of it, whether it's a, an amazing song or you discover a talent or you discover a resilience or any number of things that you discover because of that setback, that adversity, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Yeah, it's not for me to say, I'm sure. Uh, definitely not. It's yeah. People make their own mind, yeah. don't they? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so so were you coming towards the end of, uh, at this stage, is this when you were thinking of putting the yeah, guitar down? Yeah, yeah. Come um, 1998, we got dropped by our record label yeah. because we didn't have any hits. You know, they signed a, a punk band 
uh, well, not punk, female fronted, very much like Smashing Pumpkins type sort of vibe. I used to always describe it as Smashing Pumpkins fronted by PJ Harvey for like a lazy sort of comparison yeah. to what we sounded like. But it's all on YouTube, that stuff, if, you, if anyone wants to go back and listen to Rude Club. But we were a really good band with the right management and the right guidance. We, I confidently think we had the stuff to go much further than we did. But that's all conjecture. You don't you don't really know these things. Um, but I know a lot about bands and music and what makes up a good band. And Rude Club were a bloody good band. Um, but yeah, that was the coming to the end of it. I'd, I'd had enough by 98, 99. And, you know, I was 31, 32 and I'd never done a day's work in my life. You know, I'd not joined the real world. And I was also lumbered with a uh, an ever-increasing um, drug habit. So I had to get well. So I stood back and spent a few years trying to get well, which is what I did, Um, and eventually got well in 2006 and um, haven't been involved in those sort of activities since then, which is uh, quite an achievement for me, one of my life achievements. Um, But by 2006, I started to manage a couple of artists. I just felt like the experience I had would be good for that. And enjoyed that for a while, but realised what a thankless, horrible task that is. <laughs> I'll second that. Every fucking every syllable you said to that, I'll second. It really is. Why? It really managed? is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about your experience of of management, but um, mine. Um, I think um, the artists that you know that I did manage had a you know were, were talented. Um, and they did have a clear understanding of what a manager did. Mm. You know, they didn't expect me to buy pizza and beer. You know, they understood mm. what I was trying to do. You know, I was trying to get them record of the week on radio shows. Uh, I was trying to get them good, good, good um, support slots. All of these things to build mm. profile. And this was just prior to um, social media age kicking off. Mm. Um, but because of all those things that I did with bands. Um, at the start of social media, it sort of kicked off what I do in my professional life now because I was using all of those skills and starting to use social media to publicize my bands. And that grew into what I do outside of music now, which is, you know, I do all social media and PR and promotion and stuff for a whole range of businesses. And that's how I earn, you know, a living. Um, So music kind of helped that side of things but then i decided to start releasing records as well so i released a few records of the artists i I, um managed but again um a lot of hard work for so little return and 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 almost a a thankless process so i did that up until um i kind of stopped that work was taken over then in about 2013 10 years ago exactly almost i got a call asking if i'd put dub sex back together with uh mark hoyle and kathy kathy uh, brooks um so i did that i was going to do one gig with them uh, so I, I did one gig and then we ended up doing two years of sort of um festivals and stuff like that tim burgess released a record that we did years ago with martin hannett um and it was all great, um, but then we stopped doing that, and then I started doing the G.O.D. Was that what – I'm just going from memory here a little bit. Uh, forgive me if it's – I've got not got the timeline right. Is that is that when you spotted Storm Roses and that kind of stuff at Etihad? Uh, 
Yeah, well, that, uh, I, I think I'm in, in quite a unique um, position there as well, to be honest. Yeah. Um, when I was in Dub Sex, we supported the Roses back in 1990. Yeah. And then when I put together the G.O.D., we ended up supporting the Roses at Wembley Stadium in 2017. So I'm probably one of the few artists who mm. supported the Stone Roses back in yeah. the late 80s. And in 2017, which turned out to be their second last show. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think that's quite unique. And funnily enough, with, with Rood Club, uh, we were the first band to support the Seahorses oh, when they yeah. got together. Yeah. Nice. So that definitely puts me in a unique p p position. Um, so we did the first two support slots with the Seahorses when they um, got together in 97. I think the, the so people listening to this will want me to ask these questions. I can't just let those big experiences just pass before we get on to the next chapter of your life. All right. Uh, so, yeah, you know, like supporting Stone Roses at Wembley Stadium. Paint a picture of that day. Paint a picture. Well, because I knew about it, I'd, um, I'd decided to put, like, a little small run of dates um, ahead of it. So on the Thursday night, we played night and day, sold out that in Manchester. It was great fun. And the night before, I put a show on at the Dublin Castle, mm. played there, and that was busy. And we ended up getting smashed <laughs> the night before. Yeah. Um, you play in Wembley, and we drove across North, North London and went to this little hotel next to Wembley, um, one of these Ibis hotels. Yeah where the whole interior is made out of moulded plastic <laughs> so they can just wash it down with a, <laughs> with a hose pipe each day. Um, and I remember waking up in a really bad state that morning um, thinking, oh, shit, Chris, what have you done? Yeah. You know, it's the biggest gig you've played in your life. You know, 70,000 people are going to be here. There might only be 20,000 when you're playing, yeah. but still, still the biggest gig you've ever done. And you're feeling like this. So, um, slowly got myself up, slowly went to cater and had some food. Um, we were sound checking that day. Um, Blossoms had sound checked in a different day. Sleaford Mods had sound checked before us, but they don't really do sound checks. They just plug the computer in and just, is it working? Yeah, it's working, <laughs> mate. Then they get off, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, really difficult being in that band. Um, so um, we uh, obviously sound checked all that, went around all day to play and went on stage at six o'clock. And it was just a fantastic experience knowing that within two years, I was singing the songs that I'd written over the last two years, live to all of these people. The band that I had there, we sounded great, mm. sounded tight. Um and it was just a fantastic experience. Um, I hadn't seen um, Ian for years, so it was nice to see him. Yeah, um, yeah it was just, it was, well, it, it was great. When, when I see these big gigs, obviously people are busy and, you know, they, they, you know, there's a big machine that goes on behind the scenes and that kind of stuff with these big stadium events. What kind of relationship do you have with, like, you know, I know you've got a personal relationship with them, but what kind of relationship do you have with them on the day? Uh, do they just arrive later and they're not necessarily senior? Yeah, yeah. Or how does, yeah, how yeah. does it kind of work that way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with with bands of that size, you know, when you're selling out um, arenas, you can pretty much do what you want. And if you want to get driven in two minutes before you go on stage, yeah. that's what's going to happen. Yeah. There's a whole machine that exists in catering and drinks, but more often for that, more often than not, that's for the for all the crew and the, mm. the hangers-on and, and, and everything else that goes on around um around the show yeah. you know I've, i remember um 
back in this is this is this is going back in history again when the when the roses played the apollo um and i went to both of their nights at the uh when they did the second coming and i was downstairs in the green room and everyone's hanging out there and the, the band are there and john squire and everyone's drinking and, and, and john squire who's obviously you know one of the two main men in the band at that time he's just silently just quietly stood there with a bowl of tomato soup eating his tomato soup before he goes on stage and, it, and like it was like me thinking this is the guy who makes it all. And he's just quietly <laughs> having a bowl of tomato soup with everyone else. It's like, you know, back in alien nonsense going on and, and excess. That's a dangerous so, choice uh, of snack though. If you, if you're already changed and ready to go in it, that's a dangerous choice of snack. No, I, I don't think, um, <laughs> I don't think he had his white, um, okay. you know, right, his, yeah. his white stage suit on. And I can't remember exactly what I was wearing. It was just the tomato soup that sticks in yeah. my memory. I thought you've got a choice of everything. You've got all of this, um, catering everywhere, waiting to cook you what you want and you can have what you want. And you stood there with a bowl of tomato soup. Yeah. So hey, it always just stuck in my mind, Carl. Did, did you ever um, like walk around like, like the Etihad with, or Wembley? Did you ever just have a moment on your own just to walk around before anybody else? Yeah. Did you get all, what? Yeah. Talk, 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 yeah. That'd be a dream. Yeah, I went up to the uh, Royal Box. Mm. Like just in the afternoon when it was all quiet and everyone had sound checked and there's no one in yet. And I went up to the the um, the Royal Box um, where they give out the trophies and uh, and stood there um, and got my uh, partner to take a photograph of me having a moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I've got that uh, moment uh, preserved. Yeah. But, yeah, I did that. that. It must be quite surreal, that, the calm before the storm. Just being in your own around the arena, just knowing that, in a few hours, this is just going to be a completely different place. And um, do yeah. you ever get nervous about that kind of stuff? No, I don't. Yeah. Um, it's a show. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's, I know this sounds corny, mm. but last week I did an acoustic show, a last minute acoustic show mm. uh, for Bennett Basque. Yeah. And I got there and it was dead. Mm. There was five people in the audience. And um, your natural instinct is to sink then mm. and go, oh, God, there's only five people. Oh. And you, you've got to fight that. Mm. I went on last week and did like eight songs and I had the most amazing time with those five people. Mm. I felt like I entertained them. I felt that they, those people went away knowing that they'd seen something that was good. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in some respects... That's just as good from an artistic point of view as playing to 20,000 people at a half full mm. um, Wembley Stadium. It obviously isn't for the managers and the, the writers yeah. who, who tell the story because Wembley Stadium in front of thousands and thousands of people or a little show at Basque where there's five people, you know, what's, what's best well, obviously, you know, I want more Wembley stadiums and I want yeah. the big vessels, but I'm saying as an artist, you can get just as much out of that yeah. that smaller environment. So, yes, Carl, it was a fantastic experience and I really want to do more. <laughs> and if any big artists want to take me on theatre <laughs> tours, I'm ready. I've got a solo yeah. act now that is really hot, really good. Great songs. So, by all means, 
call me. Right. Well, just before we get to the solo stuff, Cold Water Swimmers, because that's that's where I thought I knew you from when I came to Manchester. Yeah. This band, Cold Water Swimmers, knew about Chris. Yeah. He's, he's in this band. We covered you on RGM and that kind of stuff. We yeah. The yeah. Album and did You've the always been big friends of ours, so thank yeah. you. Yeah. No, you, you're always welcome, mate. You see, when you when you particularly when you move to a new place, you've got to. You've got to spend time getting out and about and seeing what's going on in, in your surroundings, can't you? Because I think a lot of people move to a different part of the country or decide they want to work in a different part of the country and not and think they know best for that place. Where that, yeah, that's, yeah. Ne- that's never out. You've got to. Uh, I kind of when I moved to Manchester, I, I, I jumped straight into it. Got to know as many people as I could and got involved with yeah, yeah, what's going on yeah. and did the hard work, did yeah. the groundwork and that kind of stuff. And and that's where I came across cold water swimmers. So yeah. talk, talk us through yeah. the journey with that. Well, band. I mean. After um, the G.O.D., I mean, we split up two months after mm. um, Wembley, yeah? That band fizzled out two months after Wembley. Right. Um, and then I I just wasn't going to stop. Yeah. Um, so I had a load of songs, as, 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 you know, I've been writing a lot. So I decided to put another band together. Um, and I knew um, Carrie and Selena... Um, from when they were a band called Tuareg. They still are, actually. And um, I kind of liked them in this two-piece. Yeah. And I invited them to play with um, my band, the G.O.D., the night before we opened for the Roses at Wembley, at the Dublin Castle. And I thought they were pretty good. And um, <laughs> and when, the, uh, the, when they came off stage at the Dublin Castle, um, I said, you know, girls, I think you're... You're really good, but the only thing missing from your band is me. <laughs> I do, sir. <laughs> you know, and and I just had the cheek to say that. And then six months later, we were all in a conservatory in, in Prestwich, which was Selena's conservatory, um, playing our first song, yeah, wow. which was the songs I sort of brought. And it was great fun. You know, um, they were great fun. They were hard rock and rhythm section. Yeah. And um, we put on some good shows, turned some heads, um, released some good records, released an album called Holding at the Secret Lake. Um, Spent last year and a half writing new tunes that I hoped would have been the next Cool Water Swimmers album, but it wasn't to be. And uh, at the start of this year, I decided that I'd taken it as far as I could with, you know, that band. So, um, what I really did enjoy that yeah. just on Coles Watersford, I, I came to your gig in the woods. You put a gig on at the woods, yeah. That, that was a really, yeah. that was a really nice, something a little bit different and special to put on. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. So that, that's I mean, where that I thought, was... yeah, that's why that's when I first thought, oh, he's, he's different, Chris. You know, he's he's trying to be, he's trying to create different type of things here, yeah, right, with his art. Yeah, well, I, I very much embraced the whole DIY mm. ethic. Um, with cold water swimmers, it was partly because understanding that the industry as it is doesn't want me, you know, it uh, didn't want us, you know, uh, a middle-aged bloke, two middle-aged women, straight away, no one, you know, the industry is, doesn't want you. Mm. So if you're going to um, want to create anything and do anything with music, you have to, you have to do that, especially as a band. Yeah. As a solo artist, it's slightly different, I think, but as a band, um, you have to have that sort of ethic. You can't wait around for promoters to say that, okay, you're good enough to have a, a support slot or you're good enough to do this, to do that. Um, so I embraced that DIY ethic, which was I'll just do it myself. I'll just do it. I don't care what anyone says. I'll just do it if I think it's good. And the 
the gig in the forest was um, was about that, and it was during that sort of second year of lockdown times, twenty twenty one, when it was off and on, and we were supposed to do a, a show at night and day mm-hmm. to, uh, which I'd put on myself and promoted myself um, to promote the album launch, but. Uh, lockdown stopped us from doing it and I just said sod this I'm going to put something on anyway mm. so um, hence putting an acoustic show on in, in the forest and asking a few people to come down and join us and it was a great night yeah. you know it was it was, it, it was good fun and people enjoyed themselves and felt, felt that they'd been something a little bit different and maybe a little bit special yeah. so yeah I enjoyed doing that it was good fun so did it come to its natural end then or did, did you decide to leave or how did, how did the band? I decided, in, 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 all, in all honesty, Carl, I decided that I couldn't take it any further um, how, how it was. Yeah. Um, I'd written a load of new songs um, and I'd recorded most of the parts myself as well. The girls weren't learning the parts. Um, and it just came to a head where I thought, you know, I can't take this any further. Mm. This is as far as it goes. My shoulders aren't broad enough to continually carry everybody. Yeah. Um, I may as well, for the first time in my life, rather than be obsessed with the idea of a band, I may as well do it under my own label, my own badge. Yeah. I mean, after all, I'm writing the songs, I'm playing the guitar, I'm playing the bass, yeah. I'm singing the words. I'm making the record covers. I'm organising with photographers to take the photographs. I'm doing the digital marketing. I'm doing organising. I'm doing everything, you know? So um, how, 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 just, how did the girls feel about the band ending? Well, um, I guess you'd have to ask them. Mm. Um, I know um, we had some great gigs and some great fun, but ultimately they would never feel the way that I felt about it. They Maybe they yeah. thought it was all it ever was, was a bit of fun, mm. which with me, music is an artistic endeavour. Mm. And it's something that I've grown to understand about myself of what it is. It's not just about being in a band and playing the Pia Hat every few months or going to a little pub in Sheffield and doing gig or going up to the ferret and just doing that for years because art an artistic output is always about moving forward mm. and creating something new. And I felt that with cold water swimmers, that wasn't an option anymore. And I was quite happy. We'd made a really good album under next to no resources whatsoever. Mm. We'd had some great reaction to that and Pundit who absolutely loved it. And I was happy with that. And it was the first time I'd managed to bring an album out, out of all the years of making music. So I was grateful for that. And I thought, well, you've done that. You genuinely feel you can't take it any further. I mean, if we'd got a phone call to say, hey, guys, um, Amyl Nitrate and the Sniffers are looking for a support band for four days and maybe a tour, we couldn't have taken them up on that offer because of the situation in the band, mm. you know, because of yeah. personal situations with drummers and bass players. And yeah. um, they couldn't just take opportunities like that. So I knew it was pointless striving any anywhere forward if any opportunities came you couldn't actually take them yeah. do you see what i mean yeah um so yeah there was there was a lot of it wasn't an easy decision it was something that because i'd spent five years doing it and uh i loved it you know we yeah. we were good it was just artistically i knew that 
there was no more legs in it. Mm. You know, there was there's nowhere else I could take in. It was time to go, okay, my name's Chris Bridget. This is my voice. After all these years, I understand who I am. These are my songs. This is what I'm singing. Yeah. And you can take that or leave it. And there's no band involved. It's just me. So, what, what's, so it, what's it like on your own now? Um, I've only done a handful of gigs and it's kind of strange. Mm. But I really enjoy it. I like the, um, the gigs that I've done. I've liked the space. That's enabled me to really um, use my voice and discovering that I'm not a bad singer, really, and allow the songs to, to, to have the life that they need to have. Mm. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's a little bit lonely, but I live most of my life in, in, in solitude. Mm. So it's, it's, it's not a problem. When, when I mean solitude, I've got a family, but I mean, I, I work for myself. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a solo artist now and um, I, I do a lot in isolation and that allows me to be creative and, and, and make the art that I make. Mm. But, um, and I, I'm just starting, so I don't know. It's kind of strange, sort of like mid-50s saying, well, I'm just starting a solo career. Yeah. Or I'm just starting to do that. But nothing's been normal about what I've done or the path that I've taken, or the experiences I have. Nothing's normal about it. So, what's, and it has... What's not normal is, I saw on the socials the other day, uh, some geezer dancing about in a bear suit. I think yeah. it was a bear suit. Yeah. It might have just been a bear. Talk me through that. Yeah. What's the bear all about, mate? <laughs> Here we go. Here he is. For, oh, yeah. for, for people listening to the for people listening to the uh, audio version of this, pop onto YouTube. You can see it. you'll be able to see this all for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is um, my first there single, my first release. It's called uh, "The Deep End." <laughs> nice. And um, a little bit creepy, but nice. Well, it is a little <laughs> bit unsettling, but I hope it is a little bit unsettling. <laughs> it's 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 meant to be. Um, but I mean, I could talk about how masks allow us to um hide our true selves maybe give us confidence to fully express ourselves or how masks can sometimes suppress the individual but i'm not gonna talk all that bullshit the truth of the fact (laughs) is i saw uh, a video uh, a new order video (laughs) and there was a a guy dressed in a teddy bear suit and he was just dancing on the side of the road to this new order bootleg and I watched it and I watched it and I realized by finished I'd watched this video for four minutes and Carl I never watch anyone's video for four minutes I'm the guy who went to see Prince and wanted to leave after half an hour because I thought he was on for too long you know when when these fantastic bands do videos I'll listen to like 12 seconds and then if it hasn't got me in 12 seconds I'm away so I thought you, you don't have to wear it for the whole idea. interview, mate. It's a very hot day, but you're very welcome to wear it, but <laughs> just so you know. Well, you know, so uh, so I saw this video by New Order and yeah. I had a dancing bear in it and I thought it was dead good, so I thought I'd do that. Okay. Nice. But the, 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 the upshoot is that it's it's just the, the bear dancing in a dark room to this quite dark pop song. Mm. It is quite a dark pop song. It's got a big chorus, that's why I say it's a pop song. Okay. And it's really unsettling. Yeah. 
it's kind of a little bit scary. So, yeah, it's just being ad hoc and uh, creative and yeah, having like fun yeah. and bringing a bit of play back into it. Yeah, yeah. In the artistic endeavour, we forget the importance of play yeah. and fun. And, you know, obviously all the other good stuff for songs is, you know, having a message and um, different layers so people can break down and, and, and mm. understand what it's about. Wearing a mask and dancing in the darkness and having a song called Straight In At The Deep End, I'll scratch my face off the floor, <laughs> Straight In At The Deep End, what you think it's all yeah. for. It's not hard to put the pieces together about yeah. what I'm talking about. The song I wrote halfway through uh, lockdown and um, I finished it about six months ago and put the final pieces together. And that's when the song revealed itself mm. to me, you know, told me what it was about. Um, but I think when people hear it, and hopefully they may have heard it by now, yeah. depending on when this goes to how, yeah. um, they'll get what I'm talking about. Yeah. So. It, it, you mentioned something a little bit there about just you know getting the fun back into it again. I speak to so many bands and and you, particularly young bands that take themselves so fucking seriously these days. <laughs> it's, so, it's such a shame, isn't it? Oh, it really is. <laughs> but it's 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 not their fault. Yeah. It really isn't. Yeah. We're living in an age where there's so many experts who want to tell these young people yeah. about what they should do, mm. what they should do on TikTok, how many times they should do a reel. Yeah. when they should post at night, when they should do that to get, you know, lads, yeah. girls, young people, fuck them off. Yeah. Forget about it. Write a good song. Yeah. Rehearse it so it's really good. Get a good recording. Yeah. Nobody wants to give you a gig? Put a gig on. Yeah. You know, all of these things. Yes, once you've got past that stage and you're banging your socials and all that sort of stuff, don't lose sight of the fact that it has to be fun. Mm. Well and you have to keep writing good songs and you have to keep getting better. The more you play, the better you get. The more gigs you do, the better you get at gigs. Mm. You know, sitting around arguing about stuff that, managers have told them about or PR people have told them about how they have to, uh, I, I saw a podcast yours, how they have to uh, trick the algorithm. You are talking about algorithms with someone. Oh, I can't I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm always saying just fuck the algorithm off. <laughs> for, for people, like, for people on, at man. grassroots level, just don't worry about it. It's bullshit. It's just, it, it's, yeah, it's, it, 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 it is. What's it, it mean? It really is. So I feel, I feel, it's, I'm, I'm not criticising anyone, yeah. but I feel for a lot of um, young bands of the bullshit they've got to go through. Now, we've always had to go through bullshit. Don't yeah. make it any yeah. worse. It, it, it really is. And all empires crumble as well, Carl, you mm. know. The person who's telling you, uh, who's Mr. Big Chime Charlie, who's telling you all this wonderful stuff now, I've met yeah. them before, yeah. and they're now working in office jobs. You know, they're, they're in and out of the industry all the time is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, um, the people who I knew who head up the, the, the record industry in the mid-90s don't exist anymore. They've moved on, mm. you know. Um, I suppose what I'm saying there is don't listen to these people. Yeah. Kids, don't listen to them is, is is my advice, which is probably not great advice coming from Uncle Chris, <laughs> like, you know. I Uncle don't, Chris I, is good I think advice book. Don't listen to the bastards. <laughs> 
Well, just have fun with it, for God's sake. Put a, it, yes. They're just like they're like they've got the world on the shoulders because because yeah. they're, they're not playing the same size venue as what the mates band are yet, and they've just got the Don't world on the. Prepare yourself. Yeah, I know, yeah. Make sure it's fun. Yeah. Focus on what you do best and do it better. Keep yeah. writing good songs. Yeah. Don't look at other people because they're on their own journey. And if they're doing fantastic this year, next year they might not be. Yeah. They might just be. It might just be time for them to be flavour of the month. Yeah. Because we've all been it. Well, we haven't all been it, but <laughs> I've been it, so I know what it feels like. What's that feel but like? I've never had that. <laughs> fucking fantastic! <laughs> no, I bet it is. I bet it is. And I'll, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, we're going to put a link to this interview within the description of the podcast here on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Music, wherever you're listening to this or watching this interview. There'll be a link to Chris's amazing work and new tunes that are coming out. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the people? So thank you for sharing those amazing stories with us today, mate. I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, nice one. Is there anything you want to share with the people? Anything you'd like to finish the uh, little chat off with uh, to to for the people watching this? Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, please check out the new music. Yep. Uh, the first one, the Deep End, out on the 29th of September. And then I've got another six or seven tunes that are going to fall in pretty quick succession because mm. I've got them recorded. Hopefully bring all them together on an album next year. Um I am looking for good shows, so if there's any big-time presenters or any big-time artists out there, yeah. like the cut of my jib, don't be shy. Nice. You know, I do bite, but just once in a while. Yeah. Um, invite me on your wonderful tour. I could do with some good gigs, actually, Carl. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, yeah, just just have a listen. Go out and watch some bands. Yeah. Don't let music die or bands die. Yeah, because it is. It's dying out there. Don't go and spend 150 quid on Coldplay. Go and go to 15 other gigs. Don't Christmas. spend 221 pound on bloody Depeche Mode, you <laughs> mad bastards. Imagine doing that. 221 <laughs> for Platinum Circle. Is what that... is Platinum Circle? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? All it is, is it's <laughs> not the front row. I mean, Platinum to me sounds yeah. like you're in the dressing room, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the second row on the yeah. arena. 221 pounds yeah. for Depeche Mode. Who've written officially four good songs, and you're still going to be shitting in the same place as everybody else. Exactly, <laughs> and you'll yeah, exactly, exactly. So go and see live music. Yes, go and nice see live one, music. Support up and coming bands. Nice. Well, Chris, really appreciate your time, mate. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for the RGM podcast, Smashing. and we wish you all the best, brother. Nice one. Oh, nice one, Chris. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to him. All that history behind him. Not afraid to tell it how it is that's what it's on that isn't it so gentlemen as always you can watch the uh, episode on YouTube and now on Rumble as well if that's your flavour started putting stuff on there why not see how it goes um, yeah as always we're on there like and subscribe like and subscribe uh, do leave us a five star review if, if you can be asked appreciate it thank you and as always, this week, coming up on RGM, we've got plenty of news, reviews, uh, live music, promoting new bands, just doing what we do on www.rgm.press. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in for another week. We've got a, we have got a, 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 another episode coming up on Thursday. So we've got two this week. Yeah. 
So stay tuned. Plenty of beautiful content and conversations and uh, me just trying to uh, move these mouth lips and make it entertaining. I'll leave it with you to decide if that's true or not. So, gentlemen, I'm going to get off. I've been Cole Maloney, that guy from RGM. Thanks for joining us, boys and girls. Everybody in between, of course. Jesus. Don't leave anybody out. We'll see you next week. Nice one. Welcome to RGM. Are you in a band? Come and join us. Simply click on the RGM submission page, submit your music, and we'll sort the rest. Hello. Did you know that you can support our podcast in many ways? Within the description of this podcast, you will see a list of all the equipment that we use. These are Amazon affiliate links. Clicking on these links take you to Amazon. If you buy whatever you're planning that week, we get a small kickback and you get a parcel at no extra cost. We would really appreciate your support. Or you can just go old school and donate a pound or whatever you feel is appropriate in there. Please subscribe. Tell a friend about our show. And thank you for your support. And we'll see you next week.